Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, July 7th. Hope you had a wonderful 4th of July, and it is 10.30 a.m., which means it is time for Bible study. Yes, Bible study time. Today, we are studying Hebrews chapter 2, and I got to tell you, there is a lot of good stuff in Hebrews chapter 2. So we are going to have some good stuff uh, as part of our study today, and so glad that you can make this part of your day, and thank you for uh, for joining me today. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. Hebrews chapter, first of all, I got to say, I'm pretty excited. I have a new location. I am now in the state-of-the-art Abiding Grace podcast studio. Uh, so uh, new, new new location, uh, and uh, really excited about it. Why is it state-of-the-art? Because I got a new computer, so makes it state-of-the-art, right? So we got a new computer, a computer that should work, and uh, I'm really excited about it. So, and I'm also wearing a Detroit Tigers jersey today, right? Because in a couple hours, the Detroit Tigers are playing the Texas Rangers down the road. So I'm going to go to a Wednesday afternoon game, dollar hot dogs, and watch the Tigers play the Rangers. So really excited about that. Really, really excited about that. Um, but First of all, we need to study Hebrews chapter 2. This is going to be a good chapter, I promise you. I promise you. And thank you for making this part of your day, as I said before. All right, let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Do not drift away from it. Pay attention to what you've heard so that we do not drift away. Well, so, okay, therefore... Therefore, seems like it's coming after something else, right? And if you remember, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about how Jesus is above the angels. Important. Okay. Jesus is above the angels. Therefore, pay attention to what he said. Pay attention to what he said. And, and do. Do what he told us to do. Do what he told you to do. It's not just remembering what he said. It's doing what he told you to do so that we do not drift away, so that we do not drift away. Drifting is something that happens when we are not anchored to anything, right? If we're not anchored to Jesus, we drift away. I remember hearing a story a long time ago. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a story. And uh, good stories don't need to be true to be good, right? So a farmer, an atheist farmer, had no one to leave his farm to, so in his will, he left it to the devil. And the people at the courthouse were like, well, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this farm? And the judge said, do nothing to it. Let weeds grow over it, right? Because if you do nothing to something, it becomes worthless. If you ignore it, it becomes worthless. If you ignore it, weeds grow, and then it's not worth anything. You can't do anything with it. It's the same way with our stuff, right? How many of you have stuff in boxes that have been in boxes for like decades? I have stuff that's been in boxes forever. It's like the more we ignore something, the less value it has, even if it's a valuable thing, right? You have to give it value. I had this conversation with a friend this weekend about how we can have valuable stuff, but it's just packed away in boxes. We never see it. We never do anything with it. Well, then what value does it have, right? And so if we do that with our faith, right, if we just set it aside and we're not anchored to Jesus, we can drift away. We can just drift away, drift away from God. And, and so what causes us to drift? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's one Sunday you go to church 
and the pastor gives a sermon you don't like, or the choir sings a song you don't like, and you're like, man, I just, I'm going to take a break, right? I'm going to take a break for a month. I'm not going to go back to church for a month. And then a month becomes six months, and six months become, maybe you go on Christmas, and then you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to go to Christmas next year. And then all of a sudden, you just feel like you've drifted away. You just drifted away from church. You've drifted away from faith. You've drifted away from Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews, verse 1, says here that if you do not want to drift away from Jesus, right, do what he told you to do. Love God. Love your neighbor. Forgive. Make peace a priority, right? Be generous. Be kind. All that stuff. And you stay anchored to Jesus. Um, Okay. We're going to jump ahead here, verses 6 through 9. I'm sorry, 6 through 8. Yeah, 6 through 9. Okay, this is an important one. This is important, more important at the time that it was written, but anyway, here we go. But someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Okay, that's through verse 8, and I I believe that's uh, a quote of Psalm 8. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In chapter one, the writer talks about how Jesus is God, right? How Jesus is above the angels. Jesus is God, above the angels. Important. Now, the point here is that Jesus is also, was also, for a little while, made lower than the angels, a human being. That Jesus wasn't just God, that Jesus was human as well. Why is this important? Well, so when the church got started, the main, uh, the main opponents of the church, not that I wouldn't say opponents, but the main heresy within the church wasn't that Jesus wasn't God. They believed that Jesus was God. It was, they believed that he wasn't human. They believed that he might have been a phantom or that he might have been an angel, but that he wasn't actually a human being. This is a heresy called docetism. Uh, and so uh, it's the, the word actually comes from the Greek word to seem, meaningly, meaning that when Jesus was here in human form, it just seemed like he was a human, but he wasn't really. And so this is a heresy. So that, you know, it, it's easy It's easy to, because we don't really understand this, right, to think Jesus was just God, just man, that he was 50% God, 50% man, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. So it's not like there was, you know, he was half and half, right? He was fully God and fully human at the same time. Why is this impo- why why is this important? Well, it's important so that when we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we talk about the suffering of Jesus in the context of Jesus suffering in the same way that any human being would suffer. That the pain that Jesus felt was the same pain that every other human being would feel had they been crucified. And so what we do though, what we do then is we take uh we, we put emphasis then on the, the crucifixion, on the sacrifice, on the love shown by Jesus that, you know, it, it's easy. Well, yeah, he died on the cross, but he was God. So he didn't feel it the way a human being would feel it. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he felt it in the exact same way that any other human being would feel it, that he felt each pain that any other human being, uh, 
any other human being would feel. And so, you know, he, he's still fully God, who is, didn't have to be obedient to death, that didn't have to die this way, but as a fully human, he did and went to the cross. And so now we know that God loves us that much, that he would die that much, that he would feel that, he would feel that much pain. And so Jesus, fully God, fully human, an important distinction, uh, one that they struggled with in the early church, one people probably still struggle with today. Okay, now we continue. I mean, we got, we got good stuff here. Just, I'm excited about this chapter. Okay, verses 10 and 11. It was fitting that God, for whom and through all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What? Okay, verse 11. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Okay. Wait, Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. That's what it says. Jesus was made perfect. through, But Jesus was perfect, right? I mean, that's what we believe. Jesus was perfect, right? Without sin. Well, what did suffering have to do with Jesus's perfection? So it, the, the wrong way to read this is that Jesus had imperfections and that the suffering made him perfect. Um, but the, the perfection here was that Jesus's death was the consummation of, of the human experience of sorrow and pain. And so Jesus was made perfect from the side of it, from the human standpoint. Jesus experienced everything that human beings would experience in life on the cross, right? So Jesus lived a life and experienced all the other things. And now Jesus experienced death. Jesus experienced sorrow. Jesus experienced grief, knowing that yeah, I mean, he grieved for others, but he, he, I mean, he grieved for himself. He had to go through that pain. And so the, 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 the he, sorry, he was made perfect. The humanness of Jesus was perfected by the suffering uh, on the cross because it helped Jesus see humanity from the perspective of suffering and death in a way that up until this point, I, I don't know, we can say he didn't, but it was perfected by his suffering. So uh, an important distinction there that when we talk about the perfection of Jesus there, that's what it's alluding to. Okay. Verses 14 and 15. This is good stuff, folks. This is good stuff. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and, bl- flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. All their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Okay, good stuff here. Good stuff here. Why? Through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. So the devil, the power the devil has is through death, right? The wage of sin is death. And so the devil gets us to sin and we die. And so we live our lives in fear of death. That's I mean, part of the human experience, you know, um, it, it holds us in slave. We are held in slavery by the fear of death, according to this line. Um, but if death has no power because of eternal life, then the devil has no power. So basically in taking away the power of death, Jesus takes away the devil's power. Um, and, and, and we know that, uh, so, so the flip side Excuse me. The flip side to this is to say, well, then if Jesus died, didn't the devil have power over Jesus? Right. Because if death is under the devil. Well, no. John 
chapter 10, verse 17 through 18 says, Jesus laid down his life. He laid, he, he laid down his life um, and no one took it from him. So Satan has no, had no power over Jesus. So Jesus lays down his life so that we don't need to fear death any longer. So, you know, I, I, I mean, it's a tough one, right? Because my guess is the majority of people who I'm talking to or who are listening have some kind of fear of death. We fear death. We're afraid of dying, um, but we don't need to be. As people of faith, uh, when we talk about the promise of eternal life, that means we don't need to be afraid of death. Uh, when we think about death, I would say the thing that, that, that you know we're most afraid of is missing out on moments with our families and stuff like that, and that's understandable, but death itself need not be feared uh, because Jesus has overcome that for us. Uh, powerful stuff, powerful stuff. So, okay, verse 17, we continue. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. A sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Now, Sorry, I keep hitting my mic stand. I'm getting excited. This stuff, this is good, good stuff. Um, and and these words here, these are the last words we're going to study today. But they're so important. They're so important that he uh, made a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. What does that mean? Why is that important, Pastor Nick? What are you trying to say? Well, I would say the common understanding of atonement, atonement is the ways in which humanity or the believers are saved, is what we call penal substitution. came from John Calvin, which means uh, that God is not willing or able to forgive sins and save people, but God requires some kind of satisfaction for it. And then we say, well, what can satisfy God? What can satisfy God for the sake of our salvation and forgiveness? Well, the only thing that can satisfy God is the death of God. And so we have this theory that states that God needed to kill God's own son so that the rest of humanity can be saved. So basically it's divine child abuse, right? Jesus's death by his own choice is a substitute for our punishment. We deserve punishment. We deserve punishment. We're bad people. But because Jesus died for us, we're not going to be punished, right? Jesus takes our punishment. This this is a popular atonement theory, one that you'll see all over, one that you'll sing about in hymns, right? Uh, this comes from 2 Corinthians. This come, This is biblical, right? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, penal substitution. But that's not what this says. That's not what Hebrews chapter 2 says. It says that he died to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the unblemished lamb, the lamb of God. This goes to John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb of God. If you've been to a Lutheran worship service, you've probably sung the the Agnus Dei, Eucharistic Liturgy, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what this says, what this says is that God didn't need Jesus to die so that we can be saved. No, human violence killed Jesus, not God's wrath. God did not need Jesus to die. 
Jesus was the victim of an oppressive empire, the Roman Empire, who really didn't care about the lives of non-Roman citizens. And then, I mean, they protect, they had protections, but um, the Roman citizens, but they didn't really, I mean, Caesar didn't really care, right? So Jesus then was a sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement. What is a sacrifice? Ancient religions often sacrificed one for the sake of many, right? They're child sacrifice, but it was, it was an offering. A sacrifice is an offering. A sacrifice is an offering that you make to God right? The Israelites sacrificed an unblemished lamb on the day of atonement. A sacrifice says, because I have killed this thing, because I have killed this thing, I can now point to that thing. I can point to it and say, because that thing died, I know that God forgives me. It's more for the people than it is for God, right? Does God need an offering to choose to forgive? If so, that's a transaction. It's a transaction, right? We are giving you this so that you give us something, right? We are giving you this unblemished lamb, O God, so that you give us the forgiveness of sins. It's a transaction. A transaction is not based on grace, right? And so as we, people of God, who know that we are saved by grace through faith, we see the death of Jesus as an offering, not not as a uh, transaction. Now you say, well, who made the offering? Who made the offering? Who killed Jesus so that we could look upon the cross and know that we are forgiven? Jesus laid down his life as an offering so that the people of the world could see the cross and know that because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Right? So Jesus makes the offering. Jesus lays down his life. And now the people of the world can look to look to the cross and know that Jesus being being fully human, what he experienced there, and he did it for the sake of the world so that the world can look upon the cross and know that God loves us that much. God's willing to go that far so that you know how much you are loved. So don't drift away. That's the chapter. I mean, it's a great chapter. It's I mean, again, we talked about Hebrews last. Hebrews is like a sermon. It's, I mean, this is like a sermon, and it's a good one. And uh, excited to be sharing it with you. So there's Hebrews chapter 2. We will stop there for today, and we will close with prayer. Uh, good and gracious God, uh, anchor us to you so that, we can never be, so that we can never drift away. Be with us, assure us of our salvation. Give us confidence to know that death is not the end, so that we do not live in fear of death. We thank you so much for your offering of yourself so that we could know that we are loved. May your love transform us and may that love transform the world in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Take good care of yourselves. And I am on my way to watch the Detroit Tigers play the Texas Rangers. Dollar hot dogs. Wednesday afternoon game. There you go. You take care of yourselves. We'll see you soon. See you next Wednesday. Hebrews chapter 3. It's going to be great. It's going to be great.